Hello and welcome back to Sharp Scratch, a podcast for medical students from the BMJ, sponsored by Medical Protection. We are a podcast that talks about the things that you need to know to be a good doctor, so that you might not get to a medical school. I'm Pat, the editorial scholar here at the BMJ and a medical student at Anglia Ruskin University. But first, you probably have noticed that we've refreshed our sound a bit with new theme music. Do let us know what you think by writing to us via social media. Anyway, this week we're talking about the gender health gap. Um, today I'm very excited to be joined by our regular panellists, Anna and Lily. Anna, w- would you like to introduce yourself? Hello again, everyone. Um, my name's Anna. I'm a junior doctor in the north of England, and I'm also quite interested in the gender health gap. I run something called the British Undergraduate Society for Obs and Gynae, so some of you listening may know me from there as well. Cool. Great to have you on. And Lily, would you like to introduce yourself? Hiya, I'm Lily, and I'm a final year medical student in East London at Barks. Similarly, kind of interested in this topic in the health of women and the health of um, people of other marginalised genders. And yeah, very excited for this episode. Great, amazing. Great to have you guys. And I'm also delighted to introduce our expert guest today, Dr Eleanor Clayton. Eleanor, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, thank you so much for having me. My name is Eleanor Cleghorn and I am the author of a book called Unwell Women, A Journey Through Medicine and Myth in a Man-Made World that was published in the UK and the US in June of this year. Cool, thank you. Thank you for coming on. So in today's episode, I wanted to have a conversation about the gender health gap. So many recent news headlines have concerning women's health have come up, like the tightening of abortion laws in Texas and China, and also the government is now rolling out a women's health strategy to really examine women's health and recognise and to act on the inequalities. So I thought as future health practitioners, um, it would be a good topic to discuss. But first of all, Eleanor, I know that you've written a book or, uh, chronicling the development of the gender health gap. Could you briefly explain what is the gender health gap and why you wrote the book in the first place? Yeah, thank you. So the gender health gap is a term that explains the disparities that exist in medical treatment and medical research between the genders. So the gender health gap usually refers to the idea that women and other marginalised genders tend to be misunderstood are neglected and distrusted around their health needs when compared to men. And the gender health gap is very wide and really depending on who you are, you will be affected differently by the gender health gap. If you are a white woman, you may have experienced certain disparities in your healthcare. But as women of colour or as non-binary people may experience even wider negligences and disparities in their healthcare. And the gender health gap is very wide and it is also has a very long history. And my book was really an attempt to trace the historical roots of the gender health gap. The gender health gap is really something that we've come to understand over the last two decades or so, since sociologists in the field of medical research have been really trying to investigate why it is that women tend to experience disparities when navigating health and medical systems. But the origins of the gender health gap are very long and in my book I put the very beginnings of the gender health gap square at the feet of the beginnings of western medicine in ancient Greece and 
we can, there are many, many different factors involved in why gender, why one's gender affects the kind of healthcare they get. And this ranges from social and cultural factors that exhibit deeply embedded ideas about how women and people of marginalised genders respond to their illnesses and respond to pain. But it also considers how we just have less knowledge. Medicine in general has less knowledge about some of the more complex and difficult health conditions that tend to affect women and people of marginalised genders disproportionately. So what the gender health gap is, or what's in that gap really, is cultural and social issues around how in Western medicine we regard the pain of women and marginalised people. And also just this sort of lack of prioritisation around health and illness issues that affect people who are not male. Yeah, I think at medical school, we learn all sorts of medical conditions that affect people. Uh, But sometimes that information that we learn may be based on a male patient. Um, So Anna, I know you're now a practicing doctor. Um, Have you encountered any scenarios, whether at medical school or now practicing as a doctor, where you think the information that we learn is a bit outdated or a bit patriarchal? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's been, I mean, certainly in the kind of um, circles of medical students and junior doctors that I move in, this is a, you know, as Ellen says, it's a, it's a long-standing issue and something that has been discussed a lot. And I suppose one of the things that really springs to mind is um, this idea of the symptoms of, you know, heart attacks um, being this central crushing chest pain and actually, you know, people referring to the symptoms that women have when they're experiencing the same kind of pathological process as being atypical. But actually, it's it's not atypical. It's, uh, you know, just over half of the population are going to potentially be experiencing symptoms in a different way to how we're taught in medical school. And I think what's kind of has been shocking for me as I've gone through medical school has been the idea that the the male body is very much taken as our sort of baseline like our cookie cutter is a male body um and that is really the way a lot of western medicine is framed you know you look at studies and you know I'm I um do some academic stuff as well in my free time and when you look at a lot of the large randomized control studies around big you know pharmaceutical studies they often do just use male volunteers as their participants for their studies. Um, and I think often it's it's because of fear of um, teratogenic effects of um, of pharmaceuticals on, on women's bodies and potential pregnancies in the future. And I just think that that's, yeah, essentially the male body is centred as our baseline and anything else is considered unusual. Um, but it isn't necessarily unusual. It's just that our... Um, our ideas of usual are based around a, a certain type of person. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, Lily, what do you think? I think I have definitely less experience clinically with this sort of thing, although I potentially just haven't looked for it. Um, but I have absolutely countless friends who are waiting for referrals for women's health or reproductive health problems, and they just they never get them or they get taken off a list or they just kind of get palmed off by like really I would say well-meaning doctors and clinicians who just don't have they haven't been taught enough about this sort of medicine or they haven't been taught the importance of it or something has kind of gone wrong something along the information chain is missing um, and we end up with so many women yeah and other people who just 
lose out on the healthcare that they deserve, that they have the right to have. Um, and it just, I think it destroys, it truly destroys lives to be very dramatic. Mm. And I have had an actual, I'm just thinking about um, being in my final year of medical school and I obviously have always had an interest in sort of sexual and reproductive health, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. And I was doing a sort of mock um, virtual consultation with a, a mock patient and it was in an abortion counselling station. And I sort of thought, oh, this is this is great. Like I, I know a lot of the, you know, uh, you know being a classic like final year medical student revising for exams I was like great I'm gonna like ace this because I know all of this stuff about um access to abortions and different types of abortion and the options that people have and I sort of did my whole spiel and then at the end um the GP who was examining me was like well I think you gave far too much detail about abortion and people don't need to know this much detail and I was like well <laughs> my virtual patient was asking me questions and responding very like I felt that the virtual patient was re- responding very well to the level of detail that I was giving and I was just mm. like it's very that's a very strange bit of feedback and pushback yeah, to have yeah. <laughs> not into that is that that kind of resonates with this idea that kind of we can't give too much information because we kind of don't have it but we also kind of get worried about I don't know kind of what it is it's almost this we don't really want women to make informed decisions because if they realize the lack of information there is or actually the lack of research there is they'd kind of realize kind of the substandard of care they're receiving so I, I feel like we kind of keep it in the dark a little bit and we kind of want people to be like I don't know not questioning too much the decisions we make. I just think that what Lily said just then was so fascinating because, you know, a huge part of the gender health gap and especially around the gender pain gap, you know, a sort of annex of the gender health gap is that women feel that they're not given the opportunity to make informed choices or give informed consent about procedures, about examinations, about medications they take. And I think historically, you know, I've always sort of thought about this as being caused by the fact that medicine has always been dominated by men in practice and in knowledge. And sometimes I think that's because women have been regarded as not just not being able to process that kind of information. So they've been sort of kept in this mystified space, you know, outside of the scientific space of knowledge. And also sometimes I think it's because women have been prohibited for political and social reasons from making informed choices and giving informed consent about their bodies. And it's so interesting how those big, you know, sort of historical, quite politicised ideas around how much information women and marginalised people should have for their own good is now a sort of legacy of maybe there just not being enough information having been generated over the over the centuries in order for women and other marginalized people to actually give informed consent so it's interesting how that legacy sort of plays out now in a kind of dearth of 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 information when i think what we're all striving for thinking about a more equitable health culture is that everyone can, you know, really make informed choices about their care. And of course, that involves so many different factors, doesn't it? It involves having the, all the information in the first place in order to, mm. to, give, to give to patients. Yeah, exactly. It, it makes me think of the the whole um, discussion around pelvic mesh and things, which are, I, I haven't read your book yet, but um, I'm sure that's something that you considered because it's been a, a very big thing. And especially the idea of, um, you know, conflicts of interest of doctors around, you know, medical 
wearable devices and we actually the um the organization that i run busog hosted a an event around um pelvic mesh and we had a woman from an organization called sling the mesh who had undergone a lot of harm through um the procedures that she'd had um with a pelvic mesh um talking about her experiences and um it just really sort of brought home you know there are lots of patients who we as doctors have harmed beyond measure um potentially not intentionally but because we didn't we haven't got that information we haven't done the research in the right way to be able to be confident that what we're doing is is the right thing and to even as you say give give people enough information to make that choice and I suppose a lot of that also comes comes down to the Montgomery um which is now used across medicine but actually did come from a case in within women's health within obstetrics so I think there's some there's some interesting conversations there not just around um the way that we generate information sort of quote-unquote scientific information um but also the idea that a lot of the um a lot of the medical legal things that we have around things like consent and like gillet competence have come from issues within women's health um so it's just quite interesting that that that's where a lot of our medical legal frameworks come from i wonder if you guys agree but i kind of think it's a combination of clinicians and healthcare workers not having enough information about non-male bodies and non-male medicine but also kind of being scared of non-male bodies in terms of like I wonder if there's statistics about how many um, women and people of marginalized genders get examined in their GP practice or how um, like a what's the word disparity between like internal examinations or breast examinations because I really think that especially in medical school which is completely fair but loads of female medical students don't want to volunteer to be examined and we're kind of always taught that like which makes sense but like the breast exam and internal vaginal exam we're taught very we're taught them in very like controlled environments Mm -hmm. on a model and then you have um I don't know if Anna knows the word, they're the patients that come in who are like expert patients about the examination. They like talk you through the vaginal examination, the breast exam, but we don't have that for an examination of male genitals at all. So we're kind of taught that that examination is like a standard examination, whereas the kind of quote unquote female examinations are like scary and very private, which of course they are. And we really do need to think about how we're conducting ourselves in them but I wonder if clinicians are too scared to conduct them because of all that kind of energy around it I don't know how we'd ever change that but I've often noticed that in my GP where I've kind of expected an examination I haven't received one well we'll continue discussing a little bit more about women's health but they'll be right after this indemnity You've probably not given it much thought, but it won't be long until the risk of claims and patient complaints becomes all too real. Whatever lies ahead, you need experts in your corner who offer indemnity and a whole lot more. That's why it pays to be with Medical Protection. There's our free membership during your medical school years, our wealth of training resources to help you become the best doctor you can be, and our international experience that protects you during your elective, no matter how far from home you end up. In fact, there are many reasons why our members worldwide trust us to support and protect them throughout their careers. And if you're looking for one more, every week one lucky new joiner wins £183. That's the average student weekly spend. 
just join for free and you're automatically entered into the draw. That's why UK medical students choose to be part of medical protection. You can't blame them, so why not join them? Visit medicalprotection.org to find out more. Okay, back to the show. Yeah, I see what you mean, uh, especially like on a GP placement when you're doing like a PV exam or doing a smear. Um, I feel like just the energy of the room in general, you, people just feel a bit more um, nervous and I guess more um, um, more anxious about doing it professionally. Yeah, which is um, obviously fine. Yeah. But can be a bit of a deterrent, do you not think? Mm. Yeah, I think this is something that we touched on a bit in the... Um, the other episode about women's health that I jumped on about um seeing um births as a medical student so we were talking about how um it can be more difficult sometimes for male medical students to be in a position to for women to feel comfortable for them to be in the room um when they're having a baby and it is really interesting isn't it because it's a it's a sort of bit of a vicious circle because women obviously have uncomfortable experiences with medical professionals which then makes them nervous um for future encounters which is totally valid way to feel but we also need to be able to go right back to the beginning with medical students and ensure that there's enough exposure to those kind of and not just exactly you know not just examinations but also difficult conversations um but then we as a profession are not empowering women and you know female patients to feel comfortable you know being being comfortable with medical students being in that space so it's it is a very difficult situation and I think that's something you know as someone who wants to go into that area of medicine it's something I've thought about a lot and I'm I mean anyone who listens to this podcast regularly probably knows that I'm quite um, active on Twitter and one of the things that I do on Twitter is I follow a lot of patient advocacy particularly around um, obstetrics and birth injury and birth trauma which is like my area of expertise and and sometimes I do just think like how how can I reconcile myself with this practice and this community of medicine that has harmed so many people and specifically has harmed so many women and and how can I actually sort of like make that mesh with my me wanting to be helpful in the future but can I actually do that within this within this construct I don't know it's it's, I'm getting very meta with this but Lily I don't know if you have similar feelings like you said that you felt a bit squeamish when you're in in OBS I think I've always had a bit of that fear with medicine as a whole, especially when I did my um, I integrated in anthropology, and a lot of that is criticizing rightfully the history and present practice of physicians and surgeons. Um, and that was actually really difficult to reconcile the fact that I really accepted or acknowledged the harm that medicine has done with still wanting to do that as a job and wanting to kind of similar to you like I want to do like sexual health and gum and that will take me through those training pathways and I have to be so aware at every step of that of the harm that has been done and I have to be really aware as a clinician with every patient and with every bit of research I do of the kind of weight and the power of a doctor and how much kind of yeah abuse has gone on especially with yeah if I'm going to be doing kind of lots of intimate exams as my job that is such a 
messy place historically especially um so yeah no I do wrestle with that um and I guess I think I can only do well I can start with myself I can start with how I communicate with patients and how I operate with myself operate myself around patients and then I can think about how do I respond to my peers and my colleagues or comments they make about sexual health or women or birth things like that how can I kind of not be enabling um prejudices I guess and then I guess broadly like what you're doing is thinking about how can we think about research and public health and kind of activism and how we can kind of change things on that level but it's quite a lot especially at 23 it's like oh gosh um it's a lot that's all I can really say it's a lot (laughs) it is such a lot and that history is monumental to reckon with you know the misogynistic history especially around gynecology and obstetrics throughout especially the 19th century when when obzingani was becoming more professionalized as a sort of quote-unquote gentleman's discipline um there is such a pernicious and harrowing history of women especially being dehumanized treated as objects especially women of color especially in terms of advancing gynecological surgeries and it's a really it's But I think what's so important now is that conversations like these and the work that you're all doing is you're not denying that past. You're reckoning with it and thinking, okay, what? how can this move forward into a future that is inclusive and compassionate and treats patients as people and not just sort of objectified bodies? And what's I think one of the things that's really fascinating that's come out of recent debates around the IUD insertion, for example, is that when, you know, we've had this really necessary and urgent outpouring of women's voices around the pain that is sometimes experienced during IUD insertions, pain that is often denied or minimised in those situations. And you can see a real sort of change in the conversation. And one of the things I thought was fascinating that came out of that, especially around conversations on Twitter and things like that, was that it's best to go to a sexual health clinic to have an IUD inserted because there's a different narrative around bodies, a different narrative around what it means to feel and that, you know, your your whole self is much more taken into account when you go to a sexual health clinic. So, you know, there's much more attention and, and sensitivity towards gender variance and diversity towards sexual trauma for example and I think you know incorporating that sort of thinking is the way to move forward and although it's you know it is a difficult and harrowing past it's like there's so many opportunities now and I think the way that our culture is changing around actually listening to women and marginalized people um is really extraordinary so I think it's a really hopeful moment as well that's so funny. I think this is, I've got no wise point here, but literally last night I was saying to my housemate that um, she's got an ID. She's like, get it, Lily, it's amazing. And I was like, no, not unless I can get an appointment at the sexual health clinic, which currently I can't because of COVID, but I'm going to wait for that appointment. I refuse. I know there are some incredible GPs who I'm sure can do it well, but as you've just said, for all those reasons, I'm but like, even in my experience of knowing doctors and knowing that they're able, I'm still like, no. Mm. I wait. just remember thinking, like genuinely, if they did this to men, they would give them a GA. 
Don't Honestly. give them a GA. <laughs> Knock them out. <laughs> I'm oh, sorry. <laughs> Please, like, yeah. and uh, you know, I had mine done in a, in a GP, and she was lovely. I cannot fault her at all. Um, but I just had like an out of body experience where I was like, I, I genuinely cannot believe that I'm allowed to just walk in off the street and that this happens. <laughs> this is allowed to happen to people. Like, it's just like this is wild. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think. Um, something that I was just reflecting on as um, throughout this conversation is the sort of role of not, I don't necessarily like to use the word patience because there's certain connotations around the word patient. And again, I think I've discussed this a little bit on this podcast before, but um, something that my year at the BMJ, cause I used to um, do Pat's job a couple of years ago, something that my year at the BMJ really made me way more aware of that I hadn't really thought about before was, the role of patients and the public in medical research and how we can kind of better facilitate the kind of ways that we generate information and something that the BMJ I think does really well compared to a lot of other medical journals is they do have a um a patient and public board who sits which I just like genuinely had not considered before um but when I learned about it I was like yeah of course that makes total sense so sort of like doesn't every medical journal have this um so I think it's quite interesting, like some of the newer approaches to including people in those conversations sort of right from the very beginning when the research is being designed. Obviously, there's still lots of issues around that. And um, I think people not being paid fairly for their time is is still quite a big problem. But I think that there is some, as you say, I don't know, there are these conversations are being had now. And I think it is it is quite a hopeful time in terms of making sure that that research is generated in an ethical and equitable way with input from the people who it really matters to because sometimes I read papers and I think who has asked you to answer this question (laughs) (laughs) did you even did you ask anyone whether this question needs to be answered um maybe that's just me being uh being facetious but um I think I think you you kind of get the point that I'm trying to make (laughs) Mm. And on the topic of uh, patient partnership, I know, Eleanor, you yourself um, also talked about your experience as a patient in your book as well. Would you like to talk about it? Um. Yeah, I, so the book was partly inspired by my own experience of being diagnosed with systemic lupus erythematosus in 2010. Um, but before then, I'd experienced about eight years of symptoms that I now understand are very characteristic of the disease. So this included a lot of pain, joint pain, swelling, photosensitivity, migraines, digestive issues, all sorts of things. And I would go to my doctors throughout my 20s, either my GP at home or my doctors at university, trying to sort of find answers. And every time I went, I was you know, kind of given a sort of mm, tilt head look and mm, are you sure you're not just drinking too much? Or are you sure you're probably just maybe growing still? Um, are you sure you're not pregnant and you don't realise? Um, and I was never referred for any diagnostic tests or or investigation. And I didn't understand until much later that this was an issue that's associated with my with my gender, with, you know, sort of quite deep-seated and often very unconscious biases towards especially younger women when they explain pain and biases that can come up when people who are suffering have symptoms that aren't immediately explicable. 
And so when it, I came to write Unwell Women, I'd already had a sort of good few years of trying to piece together the history of my disease by, you know, going through historical case studies, trying to find women who had lupus, trying to answer questions around it. And so, yeah, so my experience is navigating the medical system, as it were, to try and find answers for my pain. And then my experiences as a patient with a diagnosis, as a woman with a diagnosis for a fairly complex disease. But I have to say that the care I've had since I've been diagnosed from the NHS has been absolutely extraordinary. And it's really interesting to me to have been in this system, to have been cared for at this clinic for a decade now, more than a decade, and to actually have seen how the culture around, and I'll use the word patient, the culture around patient experience is really shifting. And it's very a very recent checkup con- with my consultant. You know, there's a whole new attention being paid now to what it means to have one of these diseases, what it means to be seen in clinic. They're thinking a lot more about how individual people relate to their diseases, what their relationships are like to their care and their medication. And it feels as though that generating that kind of important subjective information is is being considered really important to how they imagine care going forward into the future and developing more effectively into the future. So it's been very interesting to see to see that culture change. Mm. And I think that culture is changing from within the medical profession as well, because as you say, you know, the way that information is generated, I am primarily a qualitative researcher. And I think five years ago, I would not have been able to get a uh, a job with sp- some specific academic training associated with it as a primarily qualitative researcher um and you do still encounter you know a, s- outdated opinions that sort of like oh just words words aren't data well actually no the, the plural of an- anecdote is data i'm afraid um and it's some of the most important data when you look at the um there's a really interesting organization called the james lind alliance um i don't know if anyone's anyone has encountered them but um mm-hmm. had a an interesting talk from them about the work that they do they essentially do focus groups and surveys with patients um and come up with lists of the sort of top priorities um for research in lots and lots of different areas um yeah it's it's really really interesting you should have a look at their website um but when you look at the, the questions that, that um, people who have experience of these you know, conditions in their day-to-day lives are, are interested in answering, almost all of them are, would be answered by qualitative research and not by a big pharmaceutical study. I think that's just an interesting reflection on, as you say, what, what, what is meaningful um, and how people sort of relate to the way that they're cared for day-to-day rather than, I suppose, the sort of quote unquote again bigger picture of you know new therapeutics and new drugs and things like that which are all also very important but it does make me hopeful yeah it makes me hopeful too and it's so fascinating to listen to you all as healthcare professionals talking about this and imagine you know imagining this for the future you know it's very different to kind of speculating from an academic or theoretical perspective about you know previous harms and sort of more feminist ideas about going forward but to actually hear about what's involved in sort of cultivating and nurturing change and imagining new futures in healthcare is absolutely fascinating 
Definitely. And on the topic of future, I think a lot of medical students um, like ourselves are all very passionate about advocating like wider coverage of women's health in the curriculum. Um, but we'll discuss a little bit more about what medical students can do to address this, but that'll be right after this. As you take on additional responsibility for your patient's care, UpToDate can be your trusted personal medical consultant. UpToDate is an online, continuously updated clinical decision support resource used by doctors, medical students and doctors in training worldwide to access current, evidence-based information at the point of care. Doctors at all levels of experience rely on UpToDate for trusted answers to their clinical questions. See how UpToDate can benefit your training and subscribe today by visiting go.uptodate.com sharp. That's go.uptodate.com sharp and use promo code SHARP to save $25 US on your annual or longer subscription. Okay, back to the show. So a lot of medical students um, do extracurriculars, like I know you do, Anna, um, like um, the SOG that you talked about. Um, and you were quite proactive when you were a med student. Um, and I remember you mentioned there's some findings that um, you have about uh, medical students the barriers that medical students face when they're on placement, etc. Um, would you like to talk about it? Yeah, so um, the UK government recently opened a call for evidence um, for their new women's health strategy. Um, I'm not 100% sure when that's going to start or really actually what they're doing with the evidence but <laughs> as an organisation, um, my committee, um, we felt it was important to put something forward for for the consultation about specifically about medical students um, and pre-specialty doctors and actually not just for people who are interested in ops and gynae I think um, something that has changed quite a lot since I've been leading BUSOG is that we don't we have started to acknowledge a lot more that that these skills um, and this education is important for everyone not just people who are going to be obstetricians or gynecologists or sexual health doctors um so we do a sort of a lot of sort of crossover events we've done a lot of um sort of obstetrics and gynecology in primary care obstetrics and gynecology in the emergency department and and that's been a big focus for us um so yeah we we collected some information from our members about um just their ideas of about obs and gynae as a specialty and the the barriers that they felt that they had faced whilst on placement um and also in their actual formal teaching as well and it was some of the some of the results were were not surprising they were disappointing but not surprising i mean for instance the i think about 80% of people said that they had received very little or no teaching about um you know, managing care and patients who are LGBT um, or people who are have physical disabilities, how to manage their um, their care within obstetrics and gynaecology. And obviously we know that those two groups are, are some of the most marginalised, even as, you know, people who access the care given by obstetricians and gynaecologists. So, so that was a bit disappointing that there's not a very much formal teaching going on about this. Um, and I think something that came out of the um some of the comments that were left on the survey as well was that often um students were felt to made to feel that they were a sort of added extra and not really part of the team and that obviously that sort of slight othering of the students then made it more clear to the patients that okay this is this is very much this is not someone who's here because they they need to be here this is someone who is an optional extra and obviously if 
you know you've got all eyes on you taking away one of those people is is going to make you more comfortable which again you know it's it's just a really difficult tension to navigate because we need people to have these experiences but we also need patients to feel comfortable <laughs> to be able to you know talk about the you know why they've come to see a doctor um so i think it's just really challenging and i think it is our responsibility as medical professionals to ensure that people feel comfortable enough to agree to have students in the room hmm. i mean i think the biggest thing i got from what anna was saying is the kind of un- the unspoken reality is that if students don't witness examinations if students are too scared to um put themselves forward to do speculums and things like that or again if patients um are not comfortable you actually produce doctors who don't know how to do those things which then down the line means we're going to miss breast cancers we're going to miss cervical cancers we're going to miss things um because we're scared about it and we're not experienced enough so like this is obviously essentially it's really important because we're making this knowledge gap of people graduating and becoming doctors and we kind of need to face it but it's really difficult because you can't quite face it by not giving patients the choice that's not quite an option um I've definitely had doctors I'm just, I'm not saying this is correct I actually don't think it is right doctors who just don't give they don't say oh can my student stay they say this is my student and that's the end of the conversation which I actually think for most for most patients it's actually fine I think doctors can read it a little bit but obviously doesn't need we need to be said you'll have patients who aren't comfortable who don't feel able to then say I don't want this person in the room um but that's one way you can tackle it in like a bad way um I wonder I mean I I kind of agree with Anna it's this bit neat we need a big bit of work where we figure out why is it patients refuse to have male students or kind of any students in the room why is it patients feel uncomfortable and like where can we like target we probably can't fix like the societal stigma of women's genitals or women's breasts we probably can't do that as medical professionals in two days like we can over time um and we can't fight the fact that lots of patients would have had trauma especially sexual trauma we can't also change that ourselves quickly but I guess what we can change is how we conduct ourselves, how we explain to patients what's going to happen. Maybe we can, I don't know, warn patients. We can kind of, when they're invited, we could say, you're going to get an option to have a, me- a medical student or a nursing student, whoever is in the room with you. We'd love you to think about this. And then on the day, you can ask them again. I don't know. Again, it's like we need this work to be done to identify all the little bits I feel of like whatever. Th- that's that's such the way to go forward and that even even if you know it's difficult to um actually conduct like physically enough intimate examinations that a sort of qualitative work around that around you know it's almost like you need another part of the women's something like the women's health strategy that goes out to women and marginalized people that really ask you know what would the ideal examination look, feel, sound like for you? Like, what would you like to be told? What information would you like to be given? Would you, how comfortable would you feel with the student in the room? If you were asked, how would you like to be asked? Like generating a sort of, like you're saying, a piece of work around what it actually is, you know, what's actually happening. Because 
you know, of course, that for some people, these examinations might feel, you know, commonplace, like a glance down the throat, as the Victorian doctors used to say. Um, and for others, it's deeply traumatic, deeply troubling and something that would be avoided. And I think you're right, like, the you know, the medical community can't change societal and cultural stigma around this element of healthcare. But I think it could do, you know, a lot to incorporate people's feelings, thoughts and fears into, you know, developments and changes in practice moving forward. And also maybe to emphasise to people who have these, you know, procedures and examinations, just how important it is to be able to teach and to be able to kind of teach the next generation of doctors and and health professionals how to really deliver you know inclusive conscious compassionate trauma-informed gynecological care I actually love that idea I think that's a great idea it's inspiring me I have to do a GP product uh, project in a month or so (laughs) maybe I'll there you go a mini version we have to do a PhD (laughs) (laughs) that's another option inspiring me to do a PhD (laughs) <laughs> no no more education <laughs> um so eleanor um i know your book documented in detail about ways how women's health been perceived in um throughout history and also how it's transformed how we um treat um female patients um uh, today in medicine i was particularly interested in uh your comments on the language used around women and how um you outlined some examples how language could be quite used in demeaning or dehumanizing way do you mind talking a little bit more about it um because the reason i'm asking this is you know recently there's been debate about what is the correct and inclusive term in addressing women you know there's one journal calling women bodies with vaginas like do we call men bodies with testicles you know um and also there's um a british hospital instructing staff on its maternity wards to use the phrase like birthing people so um i mean what what is your view on this i think language is so important and you know discriminatory and defamatory language has been unfortunately embedded into medical discourse around women's bodies over the centuries and you know when we look back you know past beyond the 19th century like further back into history you know ideas around women's bodies being defective and inferior and you know there's language is very important because from this kind of basic idea that women's bodies or 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 non-male bodies I should say are other or alien or mysterious we have you know the possibility for creating negative ideas, negative language around um, processes like menopause, around menstruation, around, you know, sexual health more generally. So yeah, language is truly important. And we're now at a point where we're understanding that women, this category called women, is not defined by this reproductive apparatus marked female. But it's going to take a lot of thinking, careful thinking, and a lot of generous thinking to kind of think, okay, look, what's most important here is that we treat people when they're negotiating and navigating their health concerns as human first and not as gender first, which is too often happens. And this is a key thing that happens in the argument, I think, is that, 
you know, we talk about the, when we talk about the gender health gap, we really are talking about gender. It's not the sex health gap for really important reasons, because what the gender part of the gender health gap really refers to is that it's feminine and feminized ways of relating to bodies and illnesses that are often the source of the disparity, you know, and that because our society historically over its history has been patriarchal and it's devalued non-male people and deprioritized non-male people. You know, what we have here is sort of over-identification of, you know, this biology marked female with these qualities called feminine, you know, called womanly. And I think it's so important now. I don't understand why, you know, we can't embrace an inclusive language and it's difficult and it's at the moment, extremely contentious, you know, I get, I'm guessing within medicine and also in our culture. But I, you know, I personally, like, feel that as a feminist writer, as a feminist historian looking at these issues, that throughout our history, women and other marginalised people have always fought not to be defined or reduced to this biological idea or not to have our lives indexed to this kind of biology and these constraints around biology we've always wanted more and what that more is is being seen as human first and you know the more we can embrace humanity and its diversity and welcome that through our language you know the better I don't by the way think bodies with vaginas is a great term nor bodies with testicles (laughs) but people I mean pregnant people I think, I mean, I having been pregnant twice, I am a, was a pregnant person, you know, and my, to attribute a sort of feminine characteristic to me without knowing me is to, I think, to deny my humanity first. So, yeah, it is, it is crucial that we, you know, think really, really carefully, both as, you know, as medical professionals and as people writing, you know, around this field about what we can do to make healthcare more equitable. And one of the first things we can do is to rid ourselves of stigma around, you know, sex and gender and invite and encourage more inclusive language because it humanises everyone. You know, it's not about just, it's not about this thing that, you know, people who object to inclusivity might say, which is that it's pandering or catering to a minority. No, it's not. It's actually creating a more equitable situation for everybody. And that's what we all deserve. That's what we all need and deserve as humans, to be seen as as more than our gender, as more than our sex biology. I really agree with everything you said. I saw all that stuff go down on Twitter about the bodies with vaginas stuff and obviously it's very complicated I think that paper was actually referring to like something that's relevant to vaginas as opposed to kind of women who move through the world as women and I think they someone argued that they used the word bodies because it was like using the body as a unit of examination as opposed to thinking of it's almost like a make, trying to make a point but I agree I don't think it kind of codes well with people and I remember actually a few years ago first ever seeing something like people with cervixes something like that um and like it's not that it didn't sit well with me but it did surprise me because it was unfamiliar and as time has gone on and I've sat with it and I've thought about it it just makes way more sense especially as like as we all know loads of cis women don't have uterises they don't have cervixes and the main 
might have a vagina, but like we actually our anatomy really differs. Not every cis woman has a period. And actually obviously we have loads of non-cis women who do have vaginas, who do have uteruses. So it does actually make sense to kind of differentiate. And I agree, I think the more you think about it and the more you think about widening what it means to kind of give care to people, especially like with pregnancy, the more it kind of makes more sense to use that sort of language and kind of feels like outdated to not anymore I think Mm. it's interesting so I went to King's College London um and our block where we learn um where we do our clinical placements in obstetrics and gynecology and also in sexual health and also we have a week in um breast care is called women's health um and and we were having we were having this conversation like what word can we what wording can we use and I think they're going to do a survey actually um to come up with the best wording for what that block um kind of encompasses um yeah which I thought was quite interesting I I mean it hadn't hadn't particularly occurred to me because I was just so focused on delivering all the babies when I was um (laughs) when I was on that block because I was so thrilled um but I was like yeah do you know what it doesn't we're we're not just it's not just people who you know as a a nice phrase that you usually move around in the world as women that are um accessing those services so women's health is really not an accurate way of um of describing the the things that we we learn on that placement so i thought it was quite interesting even for like non-political reasons i remember asking my friend who also goes to king's she was like i have women's health and i was like what does that mean like what and she was like oh it has sexual health in it and i just found that like completely like, disorienting oh, 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 only women well that's just not accurate you know, need exactly. sexual health services <laughs> it's actually the complete opposite of the truth i found that really funny um our my mm-hmm. uni uses human development which is obs gynae mm. peds and healthcare yeah. of the elderly and sexual health um, which is quite nice. interesting. Mm-hmm. That's nice. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. There's one you can throw to Kings if you want. Just pass them the line. <laughs> yeah. Just That's throwing really that nice. out there. I like that one. <laughs> throwing that out there for any medical schools if you want to. Yeah. If you have any ideas <laughs> about, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Get in touch. <laughs> oh yeah. Um, going back to your point, Lily. Um, as you said, not all women identify as women will have a cervix or vagina. Um, and I think that was a survey. Um going uh, just like a street survey uh, asking women do they even know their anatomy so because of like as, as we were talking about the lack of information so some women are not even familiar with the anatomy so when you say body with vagina or body with cervix um like what is that referring to i think we should use language that people are familiar with and so that people they they know what we're talking about as health professionals um so that we can empower them if with language that they understand and then therefore make decisions um about their management and diagnosis in the future so yeah i think the term human development is actually really nice because at our med school we use women's health as well so. i'd like to point out that i obviously didn't name the <laughs> module and someone else did that so please give them the credit <laughs> so women's health is obviously very much of a, a function of where you grow up access and privilege as well and needless to say there's a health gap addressing health conditions also an ethnic minority group people with disability disability trans health and many more which didn't cover today and these will be addressed in future coming episodes um so was there anything that anyone would like to add before we end this episode I just wanted to say it's been so lovely to speak with you and thank you so much Eleanor for coming and I'm definitely going to go order your book now yeah same I've got it on my Amazon on my tab <laughs> well thank no thank you so much and it's so it's really fascinating and really honestly very hope inducing 
to hear you know you all talk about these strategies that could be implemented you know towards creating this more sort of human centered um health system i guess medical system and you know it's i think we do we can get so bogged down in this this bi- very binary difference between you know or we don't know anything about female bodies we know everything about male bodies and i think it's so much more complex than that because it's not just about the biology or how we identify with that biology but about so many other cultural and social factors around gender and how that impacts people's care how that impacts how they relate to their bodies you know and there are so many factors and the listening to you talk about how to think meaningfully about that for the future is is really incredible so thank you so much for for letting me be part of this conversation and i just like to say as well i'd just like to add that um a lot of the a lot of my thinking and thought processes about this came from studying history at an undergraduate level so if anyone has the opportunity any medical students out there have the opportunity to do a history ssc or module or something please please do it because it it really teaches you um a slightly different way to think about things I feel very similar about my anthropology intercalation. I think if you can intercalate in something that's more left field, I think that will always benefit you with these kind of conversations. I kind of related to that. If anyone's listening and they, I think they find like the terminolo- terminology quite daunting, or they kind of feel a bit nervous about how you um, interact with patients, especially of marginalised genders, I think just having like an open mind and being really willing to like sit with the idea that what you're taught at medical school is not potentially the exhaustive way to practice medicine I think and you're open-minded you will always be fine and just like be patient and open-minded and it's not scary you can do it and I think people always appreciate a question if you're unsure yeah you you, uh, you could ask you know what are your preferred pronouns or how do you I think asking questions is much preferable to you know not sort of going there you know because of nervousness or fear yeah definitely um these are already insightful reflections and thank you for everyone coming on today and that's all from us on sharp scratch today if you would like to hear more from us please subscribe to sharp scratch wherever you get your podcasts and in two weeks time you'll be notified of our next episode while you wait for the next one to check us out on social media, we are BMJ Student on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Let us know what you think about the podcast using the hashtag ShopScratch. I'd love to hear your ideas for what we should cover later in the season. It's also really helpful to us if you can leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, as it helps other med students to find a show. Until then, it's goodbye from us. Bye. 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 Bye.